0: This is The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, where you'll hear about many aspects of law in England and Wales, with special guests, industry experts and local charities. Here's your host, Amanda Jones.
1: Hello and welcome to Season 4 of The Legal Lounge. If you haven't heard the shows in the first three seasons, there's plenty of content for you if you're going through a divorce, want to know more about claiming for injuries or if you're training to be a lawyer. You'll also meet some amazing local charities and learn about the work they do. You can listen to these shows on your favourite podcast app and get more information by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, solicitors David Pugh and Edward Reese explain the work they do, which is referred to as private client law. This area of law covers such things as wills, probate, trusts, estate planning, powers of attorney and administration of estates. Links to the podcasts that David and Edward refer to can be found in this podcast description.
0: Hello, I'm Edward, and I'm joined today by my colleague of many years standing, David Pugh. Hi, David. Hi, Edward. How are you? Uh, I'm all right, thank you. I've just returned from uh, a bit of a break. uh, So I'm full of energy and ready to go with the discussion that we've got today, which is all about, well, what we do and what it is that we do and what it's called. So private client law. That's what you and I do, but outside of the legal profession itself, that might be a term that seems strange or meaningless to to punters. So, what, what's private client? What you know? Why is it called private client?
2: Why did an area of law? Why was it ever called that? It doesn't seem to make any sense when you think about it. It doesn't really, because certainly my experience with individuals that aren't within the law that is a question they actually ask me what is it you do Um, I don't understand what private client is I understand what corporate is Uh, I understand personal injury clinical negligence they all seem to be a definition within the title of what they do but private client is I suppose quite wide, actually, in what we do, the, the type of work. And I think maybe maybe that's why there isn't something so succinct that says exactly what we do. But uh, I think from what we've discussed, uh, a general way of looking at it, private client is ultimately uh, private wealth protection and potentially a little bit of management in there as well. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. It's definitely
0: not a – it does what it says on the tin – kind of term is it and i i had a suspicion and i think i mentioned this to you that you know maybe it's it's just a term for everything that's left after you've taken out all the disciplines that do have a proper name i think private wealth protection covers it very nice private wealth i mean over the years i've had you know all kinds of ideas about what you might end up calling it i mean i think at one time there was for the bits that you deal with that we deal with when people are alive calling it lifetime which again sounds fairly meaningless but you couldn't say it's any less meaningless than private client anyway private client we have it but it's it's actually the work that we're doing you could say it's probate trusts wills powers of attorney tax planning
2: and estate planning is pretty much it isn't it it is and that encompasses an awful lot an yes. awful lot with within that and again a lot of what we do relates to other other departments in in any event But I I suppose what what we want to do is break it down a little bit into each of those sections or uh, titles that you have given. So I think one of the ones that if people are thinking of private client or have grasped that uh, term is the first one that they would usually think of is wills and what is a will? I suppose is the first first thing to. Yeah, think and, wh- about. and why do I why why do I have to have a will? And that's very much is 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 the question because a lot of people come to us, or the ones should I say that actually don't come to us, probably think well, everything I have or my. Estate or what I own isn't complex. It's quite straightforward. I've got a few bank accounts and I own a house. I'm pretty sure that's just going to go to my significant other or to my children. Why do I need a will to say that? Um, So, what we need to do is to actually say to a large number of people is, Well, it's not necessarily as simple as that and you may well need a will to actually achieve what you think or certainly what you would want to happen.
0: Yeah, I I think that's... That's right, isn't it? We spend a lot of time saying, oh, everybody should do a will. All our marketing is encouraging people to do wills and and saying, oh, you know, it's dreadful if you don't do a will. And we look at statistics, and I haven't got them to hand, about the number of people in the country who don't do a will. And we say that's shocking. There's so many people who don't do a will. But actually, of those people, the vast majority of people in the country who don't do a will, probably the vast majority of them are probably going to be okay the point, I suppose, is that until you take advice or until you do the research yourself, uh, and that requires quite a bit of time and a, a degree of sophistication, how do you know whether or not you need a will? So that's the, that's the starting point, isn't it? Take advice. Don't just assume that, that assets are going to go in one direction. It might not be as simple as you think it is you might think something goes in a particular way that would be the common sense way to deal with it and actually it's a bit different to what you thought or it's more nuanced and then and then the other thing then is we've talked about your significant other we've talked about children you might be married you might be in a registered civil partnership and that might if you didn't have a will give your significant other rights but if you're not married and if you're not in a registered civil partnership that could actually leave your other half
2: high and dry, couldn't it? Very much so. Um, That is uh, one of the reasons why you should take advice and why we certainly market it as people need to do a will. And as you rightly said, it's not necessarily that they need to do a will, they just need to understand the process behind making a will and why it might be right. For them to make that will. And, and very much relationships play play a massive part in that, um, as well as what they actually do and what the, their assets are. So certainly when I first meet a client and we want to discuss a will, the very first thing I want to do is discuss their family circumstances and then, yes, what they do and don't own and how that is owned. It, it very much will dictate how we will ultimately achieve what it is that that they wish to happen on their death. Sometimes I I may say, well, yeah, I recommend having a will for certainty, but it's not necessarily the end of the world if you don't. If the desired goal or outcome is going to be achieved by an intestacy. And that intestacy is the simply the term of when somebody doesn't have a will and how their estate is then distributed.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely the case, isn't it? The other thing we should be clear about here is we're very much, in what we've talked about so far, been talking about who gets what. You know, when you die, who gets what? I mean, that's what the will is when you strip it down to its essentials. But the other really key thing about doing a will and why even if an intestacy might achieve the same outcome it's a good idea to have a will because in the will you get to choose who's going to deal with administering everything you're going to appoint executors and if you don't do a will the estate might be distributed in a way that's perfectly fair equitable what you wanted in an ideal world what you'd have always had but you don't end up with the people actually administering the estate who you would want to do it so you do a will the people you choose to deal with it to deal with wrapping everything up are your executors. so that's a good enough reason to do a will on its own isn't it really you talked a a bit about property and that would be something that you'd have to go through with the clients what they own what its value is and actually how they own it and that's whether it's a joint ownership or not all of which is absolutely key. And how that transfers when somebody dies is not a straightforward thing. Is It's not as simple uh, as it simply passes to the survivor. It might be, but you need to check that all off. You might not want it to pass to the survivor. And I think we've done, uh, we've had a discussion about that, haven't we, previously in an earlier podcast. So if people want to listen... Uh, about joint ownership, severances of joint tenancy, that sort of thing, there's uh, another resource to go to, isn't there?
2: There is very much so, and within that resource, I think uh, we actually discussed uh, what we, we, we call care fee planning. Care fee planning very much comes into what we're discussing today. That is something that you can use a will to achieve. So a will isn't just dictating who deals with something and how people receive it. But there may be a lot more to consider within a will and the strategy of such. And one of them is from a care fee planning aspect by trying to potentially ring fence assets from being assessed for care fees or general means testing. Um, There are other reasons to do a will as well, Edward. Um, Certainly, a number of my clients especially business owners or, or farmers are very much interested in inheritance tax planning and that's something again that can potentially be achieved within a will yeah
0: that's not getting any easier is it there is more and more requirement for IHT inheritance tax planning the allowance for inheritance tax hasn't risen for years and years and years it's not going to rise for at least another is it five years for a long time yet But of course, the value of land, the value of property isn't going down and it's not staying steady. So there are more and more people who are getting caught in the IHT bracket or need advice. Actually, some people come to see us. They think they've got an IHT problem. When you actually go through everything with them, look at their assets, how they're comprised, their values, and you look at the allowances that people have got and the reliefs that might be available, they walk away happier than they thought they were going to when they arrived because they've got less of a problem than they thought. But again, it's looking at it and taking advice. And there's stuff that we can do in the wills to plan for that, to make sure that clients are utilising their allowances in the most efficient way possible and that they've got the best options, the best platforms for taking advantage of any reliefs that they may have. And creating flexibility for them because They don't know necessarily exactly what the position is going to be at the time of the first death or the second death, if it's a married couple or if it's registered civil partners. And most of the wills that we do are for married couples or for registered civil partners. So if we can build them a a flexible structure that can take account of changes that might occur in legislation, policy or practice on the revenues part Or uh, uh, compositions, the composition of their estate. That generally tends to be what we'd advise
2: those kind of clients, isn't it? Very much so. So, despite uh, the free is being bandied about all the time now, especially by solicitors, it truly is. Uh, bespoke to to the client, to the the testator, the person doing the will, he, and it very much has to be. You know, we could probably sit here all day talking about wills in general, uh, but to be honest with you, the only way to really do it and to do it effectively for a client is on that bespoke basis, is taking in their specific needs and their specific wants, and that's why any client that wishes to discuss a will has to be very much involved in the process and understand why we're, we're asking them the certain questions or the information in order to achieve what, what, what they ultimately want and potentially or quite often the most tax efficient way because I'm sure you would be the same I wouldn't want to pay any tax that I didn't necessarily have to.
0: Yeah absolutely I never met a client who who did want to pay more tax and they absolutely have to and um that's not avoidance that's not anything aggressive all we're talking about is making sure that you're using your allowances that are given to you by statute by law to the fullest extent that's all we're talking about i thought we ought to mention a couple more areas which show why it's key to do a will, to take advice about doing a will. So for example, shares, shareholdings, it might be that you've got shares in a business, you know, you're an owner manager of a business, or it might just be you've got a portfolio of investments. Quite often clients want to leave their shares to a specific beneficiary. You could fall into quite a few traps if you weren't careful about how you drafted that. Quite often we have owner managers of businesses or who have, you know, shares because That's how their business is comprised. Other times we have clients who've got a portfolio of investments. They want to leave the shares to a specific beneficiary. You could really mess that up in your will if you weren't careful. It really pays to take advice on that. So, for example, you might say in your will, I leave my shares in, uh, let's go back 30 years, Lloyds Bank (laughs) to Joe Bloggs. But by the time you've died, certainly over the course of the last thirty years, Lloyd's bank shares have changed from being Lloyd's bank to Lloyd's TSB, Lloyd's TSB group. I don't know what they are now. They may still be Lloyd's TSB group, but they, you know, they and it could happen on a, a family owned business as well. So you want to make sure that your will's drafted to take account of changes in the in the shareholding. So that your intention is to leave that holding to that beneficiary and it's still going to end up with them if there's some technical change to the composition of the the shareholding between the time you do the will and the time you die. So that's that's a really good reason for doing a will on its own, isn't
2: it? Yeah, absolutely. And another reason uh, to look at a will, slightly different perspective, is looking at appointing guardians for minor children. It's an incredibly emotive subject. It's an incredibly important subject for any parent, is what happens if, I was to pass away whilst I've still got a minor child, is who is going to be able to look after them, who has the right to look after them. Within your will, you have the ability to put forward who you would certainly like to be that guardian of that that child. Not only that, sometimes, unfortunately, when there are relationship breakdowns between parents and depending on the circumstances, it may not be appropriate for the parent with the full-time custody of a child to simply rely on the surviving parent to look after them because they may not necessarily want that or it certainly may not be appropriate and that would have to be adequately looked uh, at within the drafting of a will um, potentially other documentation to go along with that to ensure that the inappropriate parent does not have custody of the child. Yeah and we would work closely with our family team wouldn't we in in that event absolutely and this again is a reason why you should take advice over these sorts of issues uh, with with either a firm that has got the necessary experience or departments to deal with these types of issues so very much like i say to all my other clients is don't procrastinate do get it in place if you need to get a will. So the advice I would give myself is: let's get it done.
0: Yeah, I, I I'm not being holier than now because uh, I've got a will, but it, it's uh, we did our wills when we got married before we had our first child and we haven't actually changed them since then and they do need a review. That's another point, it's not just doing the will,
2: it's then keeping it under review, isn't it? Absolutely, circumstances change and if you have any major life events or anything else that changes, you may not need to make any alterations to your will, but it's always best to take advice to ensure that it's still.
0: So doing wills takes up quite a lot of our time and our team's time. The other thing that takes up a good amount of time, powers of attorney. So tell us a bit about powers of attorney, David.
2: Yeah, powers of attorney in itself can also be quite a broad uh, broad topic. There is different types of powers of attorney. There are what we would call general powers of attorney or specific powers of attorney whereby an individual is giving another individual or individuals or indeed a company the ability to make decisions on their behalf. Now those types of powers of attorney, I'd don't propose we we discuss too much today because they can be so varied, and they are only appropriate whilst somebody actually retains mental capacity and could technically make the decisions themselves, but maybe want somebody else to do it more out of convenience sake rather than anything else. And
0: also, you know, they, they quite often, if not always, have you know limitations on so they're not they're not a long lasting thing. So the thing that we 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 do most and we want to talk about today is, is lasting powers of attorney, isn't it?
2: Absolutely. And as it says on the tin, lasting powers of attorney they are meant to last they are something that you can put in place and throughout your lifetime will be there and be ready to use if needs be so in relation to lasting powers of attorney what actually are they Edward right I'm going to start explaining what lasting powers
0: of attorney are by contrasting them with wills wills we said earlier making gifts when you die who gets what okay lasting powers of attorney Not when you die. (laughs) They stop when you die. They are during a lifetime and they're not about making gifts. They're not about who gets what. They are dealing with what happens if you lose your ability to make decisions, you lose your capacity and you need a person or people to make decisions or carry out functions on your behalf because you're not able to do that yourself. So you're giving a delegated authority to attorneys who have then the power to make decisions, carry out these functions on your behalf. That's what it's all about and absolutely key because if you lose your capacity, if you're no longer able to manage your finances yourself anymore and you don't have the appropriate authority in place, so that's the lasting power of attorney, there's a general assumption that it'd be okay, my spouse, my partner, my children, they'd be able to deal with things for me. That isn't the case. So if you don't have the lasting power of attorney in place, you lose your capacity, somebody needs to manage your affairs, they need to sell your house because you're moving into care, that sort of thing. Without the lasting power of attorney, it's a court of protection application for a deputy to be appointed or to deal with the sale of the property. Big, long, expensive, drawn out application, ongoing implications, ongoing involvement of the court of protection and the office of the public guardian. Contrast that with the last empower power of attorney, I have said before I lose my capacity, who I trust to deal with things on my behalf, who I trust to make decisions. And because I've made that delegation whilst I was capable, there's a light touch in how that is regulated. And we cannot recommend enough that people do these. I focus there on the financial side of things. You can also do a health and welfare one unfortunately you cannot combine the financial and the health and welfare on the one document you have to do them separately but you can appoint the same people if you want for your financial and your health and welfare stuff but it's two separate forms do you want to talk a
2: bit about registration and why that's a thing yeah absolutely yeah i will just get on with doing that Edward. lasting powers of attorney lpas as edward has rightly said two different types property and financial affairs and for health and welfare decisions for them to be able to be put in place the required forms need to be prepared which have your full details as the donor the person giving the power of attorney and details of all of your chosen attorneys and potentially replacement attorneys if something was to happen to them. You also require somebody else to sign the LPA known as a certificate provider which if were involved the solicitors generally we would act and that is somebody to say that at the time of signing the LPA that they are happy that you understand the document and nobody has forced you into doing it. Once everybody has signed it appropriately then for it to be able to to be used, it must be registered with the Office of the Public Guardian, which is the branch of the court that deals with these types of applications. Generally, present an application to the OPG will take anywhere from 20 to 30 weeks. Once the documents are registered at the OPG, they are returned uh, with the OPG's stamp which then allow the chosen attorneys to act on behalf of the donor if needs be. Now, the... It is possible for the attorneys to act on a property and financial affairs LPA with the donor's permission, even if they still retain their own capacity, but potentially have a physical ailment or simply have had enough of dealing with their own financial affairs. However, with the health and welfare LPA, this can only be used if the individual donor is not in a position to make their own decisions whether it's medical treatment or potentially liaising with social services or any other medical professional but once the the lpa is registered it is there it's in place and can be used straight away
0: and we find don't we that most people because you don't have to register it as soon as it's done the key thing is to do the power of attorney get the certificate provider get that all done, get the attorneys to sign it up, and you can leave the registration until you might actually need it. The drawback with that is, at the moment, if it's going to take 20 weeks, that could put you in a bit of difficulty. So we're finding most people would prefer to register as soon as it's done wouldn't they rather than
2: leave the registration until some point in the future absolutely and what i should say on that even if an lpa is registered as long as you always retain the capacity to do so you can always revoke that lpa and do a new one if that's what you wish to do you know we do see unfortunately relationships change and you may no longer wish for the chosen attorney to act for you
0: yeah and and i was seeing some
2: people this morning uh who they have young children so they can't
0: appoint their children because they're under 18 they otherwise i'm sure they probably would appoint them as their attorneys so they'll probably do lasting powers of attorney but they'll also probably come back in about 10 12 years time revoke the existing ones and do new ones that appoint the children as attorneys so Whilst you're capable, you can change it at any time, can't you? It's not set in stone. If I've got just one attorney. Let's say I've come in to see you with my other half, and we just want these pa- lasting powers of attorney and we just want to appoint each other. What are you going to say to me? You're going to say that's a good thing, or are you going to try and convince me to do something
2: else? I would very much advise you to do something else. Only appointing one attorney is very risky indeed because what happens to them if they lose their capacity, or indeed they were to predecease you? And the great thing about the Lasting powers of attorney is the fact that I mentioned a little earlier, you can appoint replacements. So very much if you do want to appoint your spouse, you can then appoint replacements if they were not able to act as your attorney. So again, that could be children, could be other family members, or potentially with financial aspects, it can potentially be professionals such as solicitors, accountants, financial advisors, i.e. just somebody that you trust implicitly to carry out and make decisions in your best interests. And that's just one other thing that I would definitely draw your attention to is you're appointing attorneys that you trust to make decisions in your best interests, not in their own best interests or any other individuals. Yeah, and, that,
0: and that's absolutely key. And we did a podcast with Neil Davis talking about the scenarios where it doesn't pan out as you'd like it to, where people are taking advantage, abusing their powers, either as an attorney or as, as a deputy. So you are placing an enormous amount of trust in the hands of the people who you appoint as attorneys. So you've got to be aware there's a risk involved, but provided you weigh up the risk and you appoint the people that you trust on balance, lasting powers of attorney is pretty much always going to be a better choice because you're making the choice than relying on a ship application. If I don't have a and power of attorney because I've lost my capacity, then we do have a department that deals with that. It's headed up by Neil, who's on that podcast that I, I just mentioned. So we can deal with it. It's just a bigger, longer, more expensive and time consuming, drawn out way of dealing with things, isn't it? I, I'm very quickly just going to mention enduring powers of attorney. You can chip in if you like, but I, you're too young
2: to even know anything about them or
0: deal with anything or have, have dealt with any of them?
2: Well, I can certainly say I've never put one in place for a client because yes, as you said, they became, the preparation of them became obsolete by the time that I was in practice. But certainly I have been involved in dealing with the registration of, of them, of course. But well, since you've got the experience, since you've got those number of years on me, Edward, how how is it, uh, or what, what are what is or are enduring powers of attorney? So they
0: they they were the precursor to the lasting powers of attorney. They carried on after you lost your capacity. It's more an administrative change than anything else. They involved less front end administration. They didn't have to be registered until they were actually activated, which is a big contrast with the lasting power of attorney. So I think there are more checks and balances with the LPA, and that actually is a good thing. The EPA was a four-page document. But there, there wasn't quite so much regulation and checks on capacity and checks on undue influence, etc. So the regime was designed to to beef that up. And also, the really good thing is that the the LPA regime introduced these health and welfare LPAs, and that was not something that existed under the EPA regime. But if you've got an EPA, if you did one back in the day before the end of September 2007, provided it was all validly executed, it's still valid. It's just a different process when you need to use it or when you need to register it compared with the LPA process.
2: So Edward, your good self, do you have an EPA or or an LPA by any chance? Because I'm longer in the tooth. I do
0: have an EPA. Yes, I did it just before. In the last month that it was possible to do an EPA, I, I did one But again, it could do with a bit of a review, really, because it's, you know, time's moved on. And we had that thing where we couldn't appoint the children because they were too young. But two of our kids could now be our attorneys. And and the the question is, would I trust? (laughs) I will leave that one hanging (laughs) in the air. Uh, Okay. so um, the other branch that we do a lot of or the other branch of law is administration of estates. And we probably spend more time on that, don't we?
2: Or what do you think? I certainly believe we do. So at the beginning of the podcast, we touched, or we certainly ran through the reasons for doing a will, what a will is. Now the administration of the estate is uh, the other end of the spectrum. It's what happens or what needs to be done when somebody has passed away, whether that is with a will or indeed without a will, because the whole process is known as the administration of an estate.
0: We talked earlier about how we're always saying all our marketing is directed at making a will. If I don't have a will and you know it comes to administering my estate, is it a real pain? <laughs> Is there a right royal pain to administer someone 's estate without a will? I mean ignore whether the the distribution of the estate is the outcome that you'd have wanted in a real world. Is it any more of a pain
2: than uh, than it is if you 've got a will it very much can be not to say it definitely will be but it very much can be the intestacy provisions may just provide that it passes to your husband wife or civil partner or indeed it may be a combination of them and your children or just your children but it can go further afield um, it can look at potentially your parents brothers sisters nieces nephews it just very much depends on your family circumstances at the date of your death so As as I said a little earlier, that's one of the reasons I certainly would say it's a good idea to have the will in place to provide that certainty and it does indeed or certainly can impact on what work is required on somebody's death and administering their estate. And the reason for that is because there are different processes involved in administering somebody's estate. And when I say processes, what I'm effectively talking about is obtaining a document in order to call in a person's assets or transfer or sell those assets. Is that, that's the grant of probate then, isn't it? That is a grant of probate or without a will. That's the grant of letters of administration. So that's why what we like to do is use the generic term of grant of representation, which encompasses both of those. So it's a different process
0: than if I, if I don't have a will, clearly I haven't said who the executor is going to be. So then who's going to step into the shoes of the executor's in in that event
2: the person or people that will be able to are those that are going to ultimately benefit from the estate and rather than being known as executors they are known as administrators it's a different process if you've got no will than if you have got a will
0: and you've got these administrators uh, so is it a, it's a more complex process is it is it online is it paperless you know what 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 happens i'll answer my own question i suppose that the powers that be have wanted to try and simplify things or allow more and more people to deal with things themselves that they don't feel that they have to go off to lawyers uh, unless they really, really want to. So they've changed the process involved in getting grants so a lot of it is online, and broadly speaking, it's probably fair to say, isn't it, David, that if there's a will, you can pretty much always rely on being able to get your grant of probate, and most of it is an application online. I mean, you have to you have to send the original will. There's some paper involved. You have to send the original will off to the probate registry, uh, but but pretty much it's the rest of it is online, isn't it? But if it's an intestacy, you might. Just have a simple case where you can do it online like that, but more often than not, it's going to be paper-based and there's a lot of form-filling, isn't there?
2: There's an awful lot more form-filling and going into a lot more detail about the family circumstances, which, strangely enough, not everybody has all of that information. Okay, and then the other thing
0: then that, that comes into play then is how the process is will very much be governed by what's in your estate and and the value of it because then inheritance tax comes into play you know is that an issue you've maybe got to file inheritance tax returns I mean I know that's you might have to pay inheritance tax whether it's an intestacy or whether it's not but you've got to deal at the same time with the question of whether we've got to file an inheritance tax return and how you go about that Uh, And do you have to file an inheritance tax return in all cases? Certainly not in all
2: cases. It used to be that you would have had to at least uh, have submitted a shortened version or a short form inheritance tax return. But now that we have had that move online, for the majority of cases i would suggest that you no longer need to do so however for still quite a large minority of cases yes you would need to prepare a full inheritance tax return running through all the assets in the estate including their values and as you said, applying any exemptions, reliefs, allowances to them. And the document itself in those sorts of cases is at minimum 35 pages. Yeah, and it could run to hundreds of pages, couldn't it? It, it, it can very much run to hundreds of pages, and, I, and I've and i seen that myself, and I know you certainly have had experience of that. And it's not necessarily you're only filing one of
0: those forms if, you, if you're paying I, IHT, inheritance tax, you may not be having to pay any IHT, but you've still got to file one of those returns. Absolutely. Until fairly recently, we had to file a short-form return on, on every estate, didn't we? I mean, just, But the powers that be have said, no, you no longer need to do that on the ones that are they're called accepted estates, aren't they? Do you think that's a good idea, they've got rid of that? I mean, apart from it being, you know, it's less work for us lawyers to do and therefore a bad thing.
2: <laughs> well, certainly that... that That's what we certainly believe the intention is. I actually don't think it's doing anybody any favours. The reason I believe that is, and I think we've, we've actually seen examples of what I'm about to say, is the fact that individuals that have not taken advice believe that it's such a straightforward process that they actually don't make the relevant claims for exemptions or thresholds to ensure that there isn't going to be a tax liability. Yeah, yeah. Or claiming transferable allowances, the you know, the transferable nil rate band. I mean, it's
0: all quite technical that stuff, isn't it? But there's a time frame within which you have to claim that sort of thing. And it would be very easy to not be too expert on the whole process, miss that, and then run out of time to go back and, and claim it. So, um, It's quite an area to embark on, I think. I think submitting any probate application is quite quite a thing to take on. But I think people could take it on if they've got the time and they've got the inclination to do all the research. I think dealing with these kind of nuances in relation to inheritance tax or filing an IHT, the big IHT account, is not something I would want to take on. Myself personally.
2: No, and 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 sometimes, or certainly, what I would say is, people, oh, I don't want to pay those fees. I, you know, everybody's got that uh, preconception about law- lawyers that they they're literally just taking the money that you would have otherwise be. Receiving yourself. But sometimes having that advice and having the forms done correctly and ensuring that all exemptions, reliefs, transferable allowances have been applied actually saves an awful lot more money yeah. than what the fees for doing so would be. But on that question about fees, uh, and then the other related
0: thing about it, because it's, you know, fees, service. Uh, is is time frame you know how long it's going to take now I don't think we need to, to say anything about that really other than make sure whoever is dealing with the matter for you at the beginning of it that you've had a discussion with them about time frames and fees and you've nailed that issue so anything more detailed about that have a listen to the podcast that uh, Neil Davis and I did because we had quite a discussion about that and what, you know, some firms, the approach that some firms take to that and what we think is a good approach and what we think is a not good approach. So just a final thing, because often it comes up, you know, people say, I went to the bank with the will after, you know, dad had died and they said, I've got to get a grant of probate but I didn't think I need to get a grant of probate. Does that mean there's something wrong? Is there a problem? And that's a, a mistake. Or, or people sometimes think a grant of probate means there's a dispute, you know, uh, they're worried it's Jarndyce and John Dice, that that kind of thing. So
2: that's not the case, is it? It's absolutely not the case. What we've just uh, discussed um, is the process of getting the grant appropriate, getting it issued from the court. So one of the main terms that we use when we talk about obtaining the grant appropriate is proving the will. That's what it is all about Getting a grant appropriate is you or the executor stating or making it very clear that they, to the best of their knowledge, are proving the last will of the testator not a potentially a previous will but to the best of their knowledge that it is the very last will of the testator they're proving and they're going to carry out the actions required to distribute the estate as per those terms and that's what the grant probate is it's a court document confirming that the executor or executors are going to do such yeah 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 absolutely
0: uh, and that's for p- the protection of the executors, isn't it? Uh, You know, it's for the protection of the estate and ultimately the beneficiaries. If if you could just turn up at the bank with the will, how does the bank know that that will that was done on the 5th of October 2002 wasn't replaced by another will the next day? So the grant of probate is, like you said, it's the proved will. And it might mean, okay, extra paperwork, compliance, fees, but it is for everybody's, protection. Sometimes banks will deal with things on a more informal basis, but if they're saying we need to see a grant of probate or we need to see letters of administration, they're entitled to do that. And actually, when you think about it, that's a good thing. Yeah. So if if we're thinking about private wealth protection anyway, it certainly is, isn't it? Because it's all very well talking about the revenue taking their cut. uh, But the last thing you'd want is for the money to just be stolen by somebody who wasn't entitled to it at all. Okay. I had one other thing I just wanted to touch on. On administration of estates because you know there's a lot more to administering estate than what we have just discussed there's you know actually collecting in the assets once you've got the grant there's clearing inheritance tax if you've got to pay that there's distributing stuff there's paying the liabilities uh, what's the thing that we love more than anything else in
2: the whole process that would be a steered account uh, we love
0: estate accounts
2: accounting yeah. Accounting, accounting, accounting is so important. It keeps you right. You know what you have done and what you still need to do in order to bring that estate to an end and ensure that to the penny, all the beneficiaries are getting what they should be or the, what they're entitled to. Yeah.
0: And again, we, we talked about that in that podcast with Neil, how important it is uh, there You know to hold your practitioner to account. Uh, on that one Uh, the the accounts tell the story from beginning to end and unless they really do that properly what you end up with is potentially sort of a debased currency you know so we've got some really nice new kit haven't we that helps us with that and we're we're loving that we're loving working with that aren't we all right so so we've covered off the areas that that take up most of the time of most people in our department actually haven't we Uh, we do have a team that deals with um, uh, with trusts with, within our department. And uh, trusts is something that actually you and I sp- did a podcast on. The main focus was about care fee planning, will trusts, wasn't it? Uh, and you touched on it earlier as well. Uh, but we deal with lots of other trusts, either the creation of trusts or the, the administration of trusts or the winding up of, uh, of trusts. Uh, we, so we do an awful lot of that. But I don't think it makes sense to talk uh, about that uh, on the rest of this podcast because you could spend days on that you could do a whole series of podcasts on that that would last from now until next year so uh, that's another key part of what we do it goes hand in hand uh, with tax planning because more often than not where you've got these trusts uh, either you know you're creating them through a will or you're creating the trust during someone's lifetime more often than not there's a tax planning angle to it but not always you know, sometimes it can be protecting assets for a, for a vulnerable uh, beneficiary or just general capital protection. But that, again, takes up quite a bit
2: of, uh, of time in the department. That's private client law, isn't it? I would say we've given, uh, given the listeners a real flavour of what we do. And I would say to anybody that is listening, if they do have any queries or they do want to go into that more detail then just give us a call. I'm sure we can, we can have a, a discussion with them, uh, especially if they want to take anything forward.
1: Thanks to David and Edward for lending their expertise. More proof that lawyers don't bite. If you have a legal issue you'd like me to put to the team to cover in an upcoming episode, please let me know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you found the conversation useful, please remember to follow or subscribe on your app so you're notified of new releases. Speak to you soon.
2: That was The Legal
0: Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.